0: Um, I want to start off with a quote from a cartoon, uh, as you do, um, from Be Cool Scooby-Doo. Shaggy is saying to uh, Fred Jones here, uh, You may be the leader of our gang, but that's only because we choose to follow you, for some unfathomable reason. Well, the, the serious point to go from a cartoon to a book by an Oxford scholar uh, in the words of uh, Keith Grint uh, in his um, Leadership, a very short introduction, is that leadership is a relationship. Leadership's the property and consequence of a community mm-hmm. rather than the property and consequence of an individual. Grint observes that without followers, you cannot be a leader. Uh, indeed, this might be the simplest definition of leadership, he says, having followers. Uh, or at least you can, we often, you might be called a leader uh, in that you're trying to be a leader, but you're not kind of being a leader if you don't have followers. So we may perhaps use the term in two senses. So Grint argues that it's not possible to analyse leaders in the absence of followers. Uh, the English word leadership comes uh, from an old Norse word, Lead. Uh, which means uh, to find the way uh, at sea. Uh, So presumably this guy here is leading uh, their ship uh, on a raid on my homeland. Way finding uh, is an act of service to those who look to one to to show or to help them find the way to go. Uh, It's not the fact that one knows or shows others the way that makes one a leader, uh, because if no one follows your lead, you, you aren't leading you're just attempting to hence it's the fact that people look to someone to show or to help them to find the way that makes someone a leader turning to uh, another scholar i just decided to having read lots of the literature in this area to pick two uh, scholars books particularly to interact with uh, peter g northhouse is professor american emeritus of communication uh and communication in uh, Western Michigan University. Uh, In his book on leadership, defines leadership as a transactional event which occurs between the leader and the followers. Without influence, he says, leadership doesn't exist. Leadership is about one individual influencing, and I say one or more, others to accomplish common goals. Both leaders and followers are involved together in that process. Leaders need followers, followers need leaders, so leaders and followers must be understood in relation to, to one another. So he's, he's on the same uh, hymn sheet as, as Grint here. It is people look for leadership from people that they assume will increase their likelihood of getting where they want to go. Uh, that some first or second order de- desire or desires that they have will become satisfied by looking to a particular person to be their leader. And that's why Shaggy's is comment is a joke. Uh, people don't follow people without having a reason for following them, right? Now, of course, every Christian is, at the very least, a follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ. Uh, Going to Matthew's Gospel again, Matthew 11, uh, 29, for example. So my question in the paper I want to deal with is whether there is a distinctively Christian way to be a leader. Is there a distinctively Christian way to be someone who has followers, Mm. in other words? And I distinguish between inter-spiritual and intra-spiritual leadership whilst noting an overlap between them. So is there a distinctively Christian way to be a leader, have followers? If there is, this will be because being a Christian means having a specifically Christian way of life. I'll unpack that a little bit more. That informs how Christians engage in whatever leadership is. And in short, because Christian spirituality centres upon oneself being a follower of Christ, Christian leadership must be leadership rooted in the spirituality of following Christ. Uh, Talking about spirituality or a way of life or a faith, this is part of a long ongoing project that I've had. I've talked about a particular model of what it is to have a spirituality in a number of books and papers. And recently a bunch of these papers were gathered together in my book, Apologetics in 3D which applies this model in the realm of Christian apologetics, but I've applied it in various other realms, and this is a new, interesting realm for me to try and apply this model of spirituality in, where I say that um, a spirituality is basically made up of one's worldview assumptions, uh, the ideas about reality one believes or acts upon, combined with the attitudes of your heart that jointly then lead you to act or behave in certain ways so I like you know being brought up Baptist I have to every sermon has three points alliterating in English so spirituality is your assumptions attitudes and actions or sometimes I say your your head and your heart and your hands right think of Jesus talking about the greatest commandment and you'll see that the biblical resonances here Uh, so I would describe Christianity as being about God's call to enter a Christ-centred way of life, a spirituality that integrates our assumptions, attitudes and actions through faithfulness to Jesus. Um, This spiritual structure is generic. Different spiritualities would would have different content or different partially overlapping perhaps contents within that structure from one spirituality to another. So, you know, a Buddhist spirituality is still made up of that uh, assumptions, attitude, actions structure, but would have different content in there. Likewise for Marxism or whatever. Now back to Northouse, who defines leadership as uh, involving. Uh, Power as the capacity or potential to influence, when I mean, he said influence before. People have power when they have ability to affect others' beliefs, attitudes and courses of action. And of course reading that I go, aha, great, he is actually using my model, although he doesn't kind of explicitly mention that. Northouse basically defines leadership as the, the follower-dependent capacity to influence all three aspects of the follower's spirituality. In other words, Um, in communication theory, a lot of uh, thinking about communication and rhetoric, that influence through words goes back to Aristotle's rhetoric. Um, Aristotle defined it as the power to observe the persuasiveness of which any matter uh, admits and um, talked about these three classical elements of rhetoric in terms of uh, ethos pathos and logos that is ethos uh, the character of the speaker relating particularly to action and we might say the goodness of the speaker pathos putting the audience in a certain frame of mind or of heart um, connecting to their attitude to things uh, which we can judge by the category of beauty Uh, and logos or argumentation or proof provided by the words says aristotle um, which uh, will deal with people's assumptions in their, in their head, uh, judged by the criteria of truth and rationality. Uh, and by framing it that way, you see how the head, heart, hand model of spirituality lines up with the Aristotelian model of rhetoric and with the three traditional transcendental qualities of philosophy, truth, goodness and beauty. Uh, Interestingly, St. Paul, in a letter like Colossians, talks about rhetoric in terms of evangelism, uh, and he mentions the same three elements of rhetoric as Aristotle, and he mentions them in the same order uh, that Aristotle uh, mentions them. Uh, Aristotle says there are three, again, three components to to ethos. Uh, You know uh, the credibility uh, likeability, trust that you establish. See, one of the papers I was reading last night, an emphasis on about trust relationships in, in follower-leader relationships. Uh, Phronesis is intelligence and wisdom. Um, the building trust again through that, and Arete, the moral virtue uh, of your position, um, the authenticity of the leader. Perhaps going back to what we were talking about earlier, about um, hypocrisy versus authenticity, integrity. Um, and clearly Paul, for example, to give a biblical um, model, exhibits e- eunoia phrenosis and, and arete, and you can give various biblical verses for, for those. Northouse mentions a, a criticism of so-called transformational leadership theory as having the potential to be abused, because it's concerned with changing people's values, moving them to a new vision, it would include you know, head and heart. Um, but who's to determine what the new directions, whether the new directions are good quality and more affirming? Who decides what new vision is a better vision? Well, of course, putting Christian leadership in the context of the leader is themselves a follower of Christ, answers Northhouse's question and gives a framework uh, for putting a, 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 a limit on that abuse of leadership. It's only by having an absolute reference point, a transcendent reference point, beyond merely human leaders, that followers and communities of followers, uh, that that slippery slope to theocracy or dictatorship can be opposed in absolute terms. Uh, so, for both the Christian follower and the Christian leader of Christians, that leadership role is contextualized, relativized, before an acknowledgement of their joint status as co followers, co disciples of Christ. Uh, the spiritual vision of the Christian leader is set first and foremost by the Christ of Scripture again. Um, and this double following empowers the follower to assess merely human leaders, by reference to the truth, goodness, and beauty of Christ, right? So we're dealing with with North House's uh, worries about transformational leadership by putting it into this model. Um, This is, after all, why early Christians were viewed with suspicion by the imperial authorities of Rome. The emperor claims to be a god, but Jesus is Lord. It relativizes earthly power structures. Uh, Now here's a a, a table lining up some of those sets of three and pointing out that there are other sets of three when you start thinking about it that line up here as well. I talk about uh, spirituality. Um, The uh, American Christian philosopher Paul M. Gold, uh, uh, in uh, thinking about cultural apologetics, has talked about the spiritual capacities of conscience, imagination and reason. Uh, which line up there, and I wrote a paper that's in my Apologetics book on, on that whole lineup, up. Um, classical rhetoric, transcendental values, and the, the prime Christian virtues of faith, hope, and, and love, of, of course, as well. Um, Grint has some interesting stuff about this, this uh, um, relationship model of, of leadership, Um, has this nice uh, illustration of the way in which uh, babies and children actually teach the parents how to lead them properly because of the feedback that you get from them uh, when you haven't satisfied their desires and so on. Um, So uh, Grint talks about uh, reflective experience being what counts in leadership, Um, the ability to learn from your followers being a really key part of being a leader. Uh, not just bringing a settled package kind of to them and kind of laying down here's how it's going to be, but actually focusing on the relationship aspect of this. Uh, This learning as a collective social activity through a community of practice. Um, And that community of practice, again, my model kind of fills out what Grint's talking about, because it it points out that the community of practice is not merely a, a community of shared actions, which is where Grint puts the emphasis, but of shared actions, shared assumptions and shared attitudes, which have an interrelationship to how they they function in the community and the individuals who are part of it. Um, So, yeah, I'm taking this sort of relational uh, leadership model and uh, putting it in, in dialogue with my model of spirituality and using that to fill out these relational models and and using the Christian context to kind of fill out those secular uh, relationship leadership models and to answer some of the concerns that uh, secular leadership uh, writers have raised about secular leadership models. uh, you, uh, you can apply this to, to institutions and communities and so on intu- including intra-Christian you know Christian leaders leading non-Christians as Christian leaders. Um, intra-spiritual Christian leadership. One would look for social institutions with a spiritual culture able to include people with different spiritualities within the same community of practice. That is because the institution has a spirituality and if that can overlap with people of different spiritualities insofar as they're being part of the the community. So, for example, a university college like Gimla collin here uh, can be an institution that includes people with different spiritualities. We serve non-Christian students as well as Christian students within the same community of practice of being a university and a learning institution and all of that. Um, as long as the spiritualities of those who constitute the community have sufficient overlap with the spiritual uh, culture inherent within being a university college, Um, so on. So, uh, in the end, trying to get down to philosophers who are obsessed with defining things right so I want to get into a a definition it's a bit Pauline but I did manage a sentence uh, landing on the idea that Christian leadership is an emergent process wherein a Christian serves anyone who chooses to be influenced by what they as a follower of Jesus consider the most appropriate use of rhetoric aimed at shaping the assumptions attitudes and actions of those they lead in pursuit of what the leader and followers mutually regard as true, reasonable, good, beautiful ends.